Welcome back in, everyone, to a fantastic new Whisper in the Wings from Stage Whisper. I am very, very excited about the guests we have today and the company we're welcoming on. As we had the joy of discovering them about eight years ago, it was such a wonderful event checking out this theater company, and now we get to share them with you. And to do that, we are joined by the artistic director of the Working Theater, Colm Summers, who's also stopping by to talk to us about the Working Theater's presentation of Footwear's House, playing February 24th at 2 p.m. at Hudson Park Library. Tickets and more information are available at theworkingtheater.org. We are so, so excited to be sharing this show and this company with you. So let's not waste any more time. Let's go ahead and welcome on our guest, Colm. Welcome to Whisper in the Wings from Stage Whisper. Thanks so much, Andrew. That was an amazing intro. Watch me make a hames of this now. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I think those <laughs> skills are starting to pay off somewhere. But... <laughs> I'm really, I'm really honored to have you here to be talking to you today about this great new show you have coming up, Footwear's House, and about the amazing working theater, which as we spoke off the air, it was amazing to stumble upon you guys. I believe it was back in 2018 and, and just fall into all of that. You know, it was such an amazing show and experience and it left me being like, I need to go discover more about what this theater's doing. And now here you all are on our show and this is so exciting with this great new show footwear's house let's go ahead and start by having you tell our listeners a bit about what footwear's house is about sure absolutely yeah hi everybody i'm cullum <laughs> i'm he him his and director and writer and i'm the artistic director of work in theater yeah I first encountered Laura Neal's play Footwear's House through our amazing co-producer, Johnny Silverstein at King Company, who had actually supported Laura's work and um, introduced the play to our producer of artistic programs, Sanam Hashemi, who recommended that I give it a read. The play is about a fictional footwear store in downtown New York, in which there's a degree of union busting being executed by employers against the employees there. And the employees are trying to fight back by organizing in response to poor working conditions, unsafe work practices and mismanagement. And Laura actually happens to work at REI, who I don't know if our listeners know, but REI has been accused of union busting by pro-union workers at the institution. And Laura has been a huge part of the advocacy campaign for the employees of REI. And initially she wrote this play, Footwear's House, as an opportunity really for employees and workers at the REI, REI Soho Union House to experience a moment of catharsis, come together, and really be in community around their organizing. And so the play follows the story of a fictional footwear house, wherein there are two competing schools of the best way to culturally organize or to, or to sort of bring the, their employers to the table for negotiations. And as the play goes on, we discover the rifts and tensions that emerge from that kind of dialectic of how best to organize. And the amazing thing about Laura's play is that where I feel like, you know, traditionally there's a kind of form for plays concerning the labor movement. And I think Laura manages to avoid some of the pitfalls and cliches that sometimes make plays that feel maybe issue play led or didactic completely, completely avoids those problems and manages to create something that's really fun, feels really fresh and feels really formally experimental as well. 
That sounds amazing. And what a timely piece to be doing as well. That is fantastic. So I'm curious now, I mean, we are about 10 days away from the opening at the time of this recording. What has it been like developing the piece? Yeah, it's that's an interesting question. You know, I, I think Laura has been developing the piece for over a year, broadly speaking, in terms of internal readings and then shorter readings with REI. And for me, it's really been about collaborating with Laura to realize the piece at Hudson Park Library. I think for, to answer your question, I want to speak to the direction, the, maybe how the show fits into a new era at working theatre and how we're trying to position ourselves in relation to programming versus development, because really this is Laura's, Laura's baby and we're just supporting, we're just supporting the work in the context of her union organizing. And that's exactly where I'm hoping the theatre can go in the future. You know, we're asking questions like, how can we as a theatre company be more directly involved in the labour movement? And how can we operate and behave more like a grassroots movement or like cultural organizers. You know, I think a play is an opportunity to, if nothing else, to put people in conversation, bring people together, and is a jumping off point, an amazing opportunity to get organized. So I'd like the working theater to be in a position where we can do this kind of rapid response programming that takes its lead from ongoing events in the labor movement. And we are, so, you know, see it. See the picket line <laughs> love that love that you've kind of already touched on this a little bit but i'm gonna dive even deeper into this is there a message or a thought you hope the audiences will take away from footwear's house the message or thought that i'd like audiences to take away is i think ultimately that the show is trying to show us how to fight the common enemy I think what I think what Laura is trying to do with the play is amplify the voices of union workers. And I think, you know, one of the things we're trying to do in a practical sense is raise money for the Union Hardship Fund. So I hope that people will come away from the event feeling like they have maybe discovered something about the labor movement that they hadn't before. And maybe that they're able to they come away with a sense of how better to organize themselves in relation to issues in the labor movement. I love that idea, especially now where I feel like since the pandemic, we've really entered more of an age of the worker and less of the company. And so I appreciate that. I really like that message. It's really fantastic. Yeah, thank you. You know, we're incredibly excited about it. I think one of the ways in which we're hopeful our programming can be impactful is not just, you know, creating through creating access and centering the stories of working people on our stages, but also through being active contributors to a to a theater ecology which is involved in cultural organizing oh i love that i'm going to steal that i'm going to use that as a great talking point that's beautiful beautiful you know you are so welcome <laughs> well i want to step away from the show just for a little bit because i i want I really want our listeners to get to know this amazing organization that you are the artistic director of now, which is The Working Theater. So could we start by having you tell us a little bit about what Working Theater is? 
Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So Working Theatre, we are the only organization off Broadway completely committed to centering the stories of working people. We make work for, about, and with the population which makes up the majority of the metropolitan workforce. That is folks working in ser- everywhere in service to the essential workers that got us through the pandemic. And, you know, we are the oldest working class theatre in the country and the first company to introduce a sliding scale ticket initiative. The company goes right back to 1985 and was founded by a group of actors who just looked around at the scene and saw that they weren't being represented. And so they formed a company to center the stories of the working class. And what they found as they went on through the late 80s and early 90s was that actually it wasn't enough simply to tell the stories of working people, that indeed you had to take the stories to the populations you wanted to serve. And so they embraced a sort of like mobile unit aesthetic and started bringing work out into the five boroughs. And this was something that my predecessor, our artistic director emeritus, Mark Pleasant, really, really embraced and in setting up incredible productions like La Ruta, which was a show about the migrant crisis written by Ed Cardona Jr., in which Mark, our old artistic director, bought a 16-wheeler truck in which the performance happened. And through a hole in the back, audience members crawled up into this truck all across the five boroughs to see performers tell the story of migrants right there in the boroughs where it mattered most. So it's through productions like that, the company sort of rose to, you know, rose to prominence. And I think, you know, the company's history is really one of creating access. Everything the company has done since its inception has been about throwing a wide enough net to attract and interest and serve populations which maybe have been underserved by the professional theater. And we've done that in a number of ways. That is wonderful. Wow. Wow. I want to just like thumb through more of your past productions based just on that La Ruta. That was amazing. That I can only imagine how powerful for one, just the setting of that is, let alone the stories that were shared. So that is incredible. Totally. It was incredible. And it's the kind of thing that we are trying to imagine our way back into. I think that's the kind of programming which you know, particularly in this moment of inflection and crisis for the theater economy in this country, you know, we are thinking about alternative ways to program, ways to break the off-Broadway producing model and create things in the spirit of La Ruta and those early days of the company. Love that. Well, I kind of want to keep going down this this road a little bit more with you. And I want to ask, you know, what can audiences expect from your shows you know i'm sure they're all not in 16 wheeler trucks but, you know, <laughs> what, what exactly can audiences expect from working theater productions andrew i wish they were all in 16 wheeler trucks yeah absolutely great question you know what can an audience expect we are in part a new american play company so what you can expect is world premiere plays which center the stories of working people and we're in discussions at the company always about what that means. For me, I think of working people as anyone whose humanity is impacted by capital and neoliberalism. So that includes everyone from sanitation workers to Wall Street brokers. That's how I'm thinking of the umbrella term working people. When we say center them, I think that means, you know, to try to center the stories of working people, not as like passive victims of, you know, an oppressive system or as like revolutionary saints, but as as three-dimensional characters actively in pursuit of bigger dreams. That is fantastic. I love that. Just completely covering the spectrum of workers. It's amazing. Now you have kind of talked about this a little, but I want to even dive deeper into it. And I want to know 
you know, is there a particular mission or goal that your company strives for with its productions or even with just its existence? A hundred percent. Yeah. So we've talked a little bit maybe about how our content serves folks, but maybe it's useful to talk about the story of how we've created access in terms of cost. So all working theater programming is provided free through our sliding scale initiative in an effort to break down financial barriers to entry. We try to break down geographic barriers to access through initiatives like our Five Boroughs, One City program, which actually was born with that La Ruta project. Five Boroughs, One City is essentially a, a mobile theater making initiative which in which artists, professional artists work in communities to create work for communities. I I want to talk a little bit, I suppose, to speak to this to speak to this question about how we've created access not only for audiences, but also for folks who have an interest in training their theater skills. One of the really exciting things for me in this past season as I get to know the company has been to experience our theater works programming, which has been going for 20 years. It's a theater training program first provided by the company in, to answer that problem of like, okay, we we have a target audience that we cannot serve because we're siloed inside of the sort of off-Broadway ecology. How do we take theater training to the people who need it most? And so born out of our collaborations with the labor movement, we have for many years had a theater training program run by the amazing directors and writers, Joe Roland and Joe White, down at 32BJ, and the uh, and CWE, the Consortium for Workers' Education. And through these programs, folks with union membership have had access to training as playwrights, training as actors, and the opportunity to professionally develop their work with a mentor. Over the years, we came to realize that the company, that actually there were barriers to access inherent in union membership. And so we've been trying to, over the years, break down through our open access program, that's the barrier to entry. So now that program is actually freely available regardless of union membership. And this year we even did our first ever bilingual edition of the program, which was wild and amazing and directed by Reza Salazar in a co-production with the amazing folks up at People's Theatre Project in Washington Heights. Yeah, it was amazing. We actually took over the Whitney Museum for an evening, which was really special. That all sounds absolutely amazing. I love all of the outreach, all of the informative work that you're doing. Like This is incredible. I have no idea just how far, how deep the, the roots went for this. This is incredible. And I have even more respect because I love that. I love when a theater company sets up shop, obviously, you know, it does its thing. Mm -hmm. It's brilliant. It's even more brilliant when it actually not only puts on great theater, but extends its reach into the community to really bring the entire community together. In this case, the worker community, if you will. And I just love, love the efforts that you're putting out. This is amazing. Thank you. Yeah. We're doing so that. you've kind of already answered my final question, but the final question I have for you in this first part is who do you hope have access both to Footwear's house and to the working theater itself? For me, Footwear's house is really about how do we serve the community of organizers protesting REI? How do we create an opportunity for folks in that community to come together and be in conversation? I... I'm really excited that we're actually going to be featuring employees of REI in our presentation of the work and the reading on the 24th. And then beyond that, I think, as we continue to look at our core programming from the theater works program that we discussed through access to our main stage productions, I'm really enthusiastic that we continue to try to broaden our reach, amplify the voices of working people, 
and make sure that those barriers to access are not barriers to entry. Switching gears now, on the second part of our interview, we love letting our listeners get a chance to know our guests a little bit more. Pull the curtain back, if you will. And I want to start with our regular first question for you, which is what or who inspires you? What playwrights, composers, or shows have inspired you in the past or are just some of your favorites? Mm. Okay, this question there's so many people that you could answer with but i'm gonna go with my favorite production of the last five years which may be unsurprisingly from someone who is artistic director at a working theater company is the was the caucasian chalk circle bertolt brecht's parable which i don't know for people who don't know it it's a story of a peasant girl who rescues a baby and becomes a better mother than the baby's wealthy biological parents And I had a history with this play. I had read the play many, many years ago. And at the time, I thought of it as quite didactic, a bit of a kind of agitprop piece that bored me with its sort of simple, you know, in my mind at the time, simple, you know, sort of discourse and seeing it just tore my head off. I saw it in a production directed by Michael Palmeyer and starring Stephanie Reifensberger in the Berliner Ensemble in Berlin. And I... I don't know for those who haven't been to the Berliner Ensemble, uh, the the it's essentially a, a it's a proscenium stage with an incredibly with incredible depth, like a black box tunnel that disappears into the night, and the staging was incredibly simple. It began with we we imagine a roadie tuning up a guitar, and slowly over the course of maybe five ten minutes this roadie begins to play an incredible guitar solo. And just when you think it's done, it's not and goes on to, you know, increasingly virtuosic, increasingly ecstatic, increasingly sort of bacchanalian levels of, of, of a guitar playing wizardry. And then suddenly he stops and he's off and a single spotlight comes on that almost, as far as I can remember, never changes the rest of the show. And up in the dark, the far end of that long tunnel-like black box you see cigarettes lit and the actors are standing around a table and then you hear in the dark the clip-clop of feet running as fast as they can all the way down to that spotlight and the actors hit their marks and from the time the first performer starts speaking to the time the performance is over you just bear witness to the most incredible most athletic most virtuosic performance i've ever seen and it changed my, it just changed my brain chemistry, you know, it changed my DNA and really made me reconsider our expectations of theatre and how to engage with theatricality, especially inside an American context where, you know, I think there are certain assumptions that we have and certain givens that we assume in terms of what it means, what it means to engage, to what it means to be present with an audience as, as performers, as theatre makers. And I mean, this production was in your face in the room with you it was more like watching sports than it was like watching a play and yeah 
I can't say enough good things about Stephanie Reifen Reifensberger, for whom the the star of the show, who just like by the time it was done, you just wanted to like, you just wanted to like take her and hold her and, and you know, and, and make sure that she was okay. It was like the most incredible performance. That sounds uh, absolutely amazing. I wish our listeners could have seen your face as you were describing it, because I was like, yeah, go on. Yes, I was <laughs> right there with you. You were so enthusiastic about that. So what an incredible performance. Snowballing off of that, I mean, have mm -hmm. you seen any great theater here lately that you might be able to recommend to our listeners? 100%. Yeah, 100%. I, I saw Public Obscenities recently by Sheriff Misha Chowdhury. I really hope I'm pronouncing Misha's name correctly. Nice. Fix that later. A beautiful, beautiful production down at theatre for a new audience. Just this incredible, epic allegory, which set its own time and refuses to sort of play into my expectations, at least as an audience member, of what a, a narrative arc maybe should conform to and forced me to listen in a new way. Another show I saw just just last night actually was Spiritus Virgil's Dance by Daylor and Andersmith, who's a who's a pal, and her exploration of a death and how we deal with death as a society is that playing down at Rattlestick right now, and it is transcendently beautiful. Two fabulous shows to share with our listeners. Thank you for that. That is absolutely amazing. I've heard nothing but great things about public obscenities. I need oh, it's so good. It's so so good. Well, I want to ask now, what is your favorite part about working in the theater? Oh, oh my God. I've got two answers to this at the moment. I think one in a one 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 in my like work, my work life at working theater, and one in my, you know, my freelance life and that I think that I've been thinking about for years. I think at working theater, there is a feel-good factor that happens when a working person hears their words read for the first time that I that takes me back to the first experiences I ever had with theatre when I was growing up in you know rural Ireland in community theatres and just the significance of hearing your own words said aloud on a stage and telling your story cannot be overstated it is so important uh, particularly in a world that wants to stifle those stories makes a difference for me every time and then the second one which is a little bit more like nerdy and theater you know theater kitty is i just I, I i am obsessed with the family tree that we all have as theater people you know we i love how tiny our world is that we are connected you know you and i connected by the shows that we've seen or teachers we've maybe had or shared or methods that they shared or that we practiced or plays we read and it's like this incredible shorthand that unites all of us. And I have this like nerdy dream, you know, of, of, of tracing the tracing the sort of bloodlines that we all share someday. And um, it just gives me, I suppose, a tremendous sense of community. Yes, 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 yes. I love that answer. Well, we have now arrived at my favorite question to ask guests. And that, of course, is what is your favorite theater memory? Oh my God. Okay. I do have a story for you. So as I said, I grew up in rural Ireland and I grew up not only in, in rural kind of outback country, but also in a Gaelic speaking part of Ireland. So grew up speaking in the Irish language and I went to an Irish language primary school. And 
as you can imagine, Catholicism was incredibly important in the in the in in the lives of rural Gaelic speaking Irish folks in the Republic. And I I always had an interest in theatre, particularly in the Nativity play, which when I was you know a, a teeny tiny child was something that my school put on every holiday season. And you know I I, I was attracted to it. I, I loved the costumes. I loved the spectacle of it. I loved watching whichever teacher you know whichever teacher was running that class form direct the piece. It, and you know as I look back on it, it's definitely my first you know my one of my foundational experiences of theatre is actually this nativity play that we did in my my primary school, and. Uh, there came there came a year, I maybe three or four years into primary school, where I desperately wanted to take part, but the school the school pushed back and said, you know, you can't take part because your mom and dad are atheists. And this was true. My parents were died in the wool, like atheists, you know, Marxists. So I so so I sort of you know pushed back and said I'd really like to take part. And I had a form teacher who said, okay, you can take part as a director. And I think what that meant to her was. The director doesn't do anything. You can kind of like be present in rehearsals. I think she couldn't think of a more useless title than director, which, you know. And, um, so I was the director and my job was, it was, a, a, you know, a very experimental nativity. And my job was to cue the sheep to sing. So at critical moments when the sheep sang at the birth of Christ, I stood up in the church on the day of the performance and I cued the sheep to sing. Um, and that is one of my favorite theater memories. I love that. What a, We love a great origin story, first of all, but what <laughs> an incredible origin story. I love that. That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Oh my God, you're so welcome. You're so welcome. Well, as we wrap things up, I'm curious to know, do you or the Working Theater Company have any other projects or productions coming down the pipeline that we might be able to plug for you? A hundred percent. Yes, we do. As of as of today's recording, there's a couple of days left for working people to apply to our commissioning program, the Mark Pleasant Commission Fund, which is basically a first time commission for working people who've maybe never had a play produced before and an opportunity to work with an established playwright mentor in a professional playwriting development process. Uh, so apply, apply, apply. Recommend that friends apply. If you know anyone who's from that background who needs an opportunity to, 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 to submit to the working theater, I'm going to say this and I'm going to get in trouble for it later. We'll take a late submission. Send them in go on and yeah we've got uh, our open mic night coming up on the 20th in new york city at solace bar on east ninth street and we've got laura neal's amazing play footwear's house directed by me happening at hudson park library on the 24th <laughs> and we've got our main stage production of kia corthran's fish coming up it's going to be directed by adrian williams at theater row uh, march 19th through april 20th and opens on april 2nd I love all of that. You've got tons of irons in the fire going on. This is incredible. So with you having so many irons in the fire, that leads to my final question, which is if our listeners want to get more information about Footwear's House or about the working theater or about you, maybe they'd like to reach out to you. How can they do so? Yeah, absolutely. We'd love to hear from you. Workintheater.com or work in theater on Instagram and my email, you can always get me on, uh, take my work email. It's column at theworkingtheater.org and you can find me at column underscore summers on Instagram. Well, column, thank you so, so much for your time today. This has been an absolute joy. I'm so excited about all the work that work in theater is doing. I cannot wait for this upcoming reading of Footwear's House and I can't wait for the production of Fish coming this spring. So really, thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you for your time today. 
thank you so much for having us and giving us an opportunity to talk about the work. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you. My guest today has been the artistic director of the Working Theater, Colm Summers, who stopped by to talk to us about the Working Theater, but also about their upcoming presentation of the play Footwear's House. Now, this is a reading that's happening on February 24th at 2 p.m. at Hudson Park Library. You can get your tickets and more information by visiting theworkingtheater.org. And of course, that is theater spelt the wrong way, the American way, with the E-R. So... <laughs> Make sure you head over there and check them out. Also on that website, you can find lots of information about their upcoming production of Fish at Theater Row in association with King Company, as well as submission process stuff. All the all the great things about the Working Theater. Just head to the website. And we also have some other contact information about the Working Theater and about Colin that we're going to be posting in our episode description, as well as on our social media post. But right now, Make sure you RSVP, get your tickets for Footwear's House on February 24th at 2 p.m. at Hudson Park Library. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez reminding you to turn off your cell phones, unwrap your candies, and keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. And be sure to check out our website for all things Stage Whisper and theater. You'll be able to find merchandise, tours, tickets, and more. Simply visit stagewhisperpod.com. Our theme song is Maniac by Jazzar. Other music on this episode provided by Jazzar and Billy Murray. You can also become a patron of our show by logging on to patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. There you will find all the information about our backstage pass as well as our tip jar. Thank you so much for your generosity. We could not do this show without you.